Well, it's wonderful to be with you uh, here today at Grace Baptist Church. I've, uh, I, I feel as if I've had a long-standing connection here uh, through your pastors, uh, who have been friends of mine. Doug Sargent, way back in the late Middle Ages, and um, David Daniels, who's been a very dear friend for about 30 years. And, and then Paul and Jennifer were students of mine in the very first year of Heritage, 25 years ago. So, uh, and then now uh, Christian and John are a couple of members here who have been students of mine, so it's a pleasure to be here. I can't remember when it was that I actually preached here the last time. I think it was, it was probably 20 years ago or something like that. What I remember is um, I, was, I was asked to fit into a series that uh, the pastor was doing at the time, which happened to be in 1 Corinthians. And so it happened that in my two Sundays as guest preacher, I had to preach from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 about church discipline and sex. Not the topics I would normally choose um, if I'm parachuted in as, as the guest preacher at a church, but I survived it, and, uh, and apparently the church did too. So it's a pleasure to be back here today. It was 40 years ago uh, that our family immigrated from the USA to Toronto. Um, we, uh, we moved to Toronto when, when I became the pastor of Runnymede Baptist Church. And so we moved into the Blue West Village area, and uh, we enrolled our two kids who were of school age at Runnymede Public School. And um, early on in their time there, I, I can't remember the occasion, but I happened to be at school and met one of the teachers. And, um, and, and he first said to me, you need to know that as a, as a pastor, you have the right to come visit the school anytime you want and, and visit the classroom. That, that's, that's part of the Education Act. Then he gave me a, a, a print copy of the Education Act, and, which I found fascinating. So as I read the Education Act of Ontario, this is 1978, it said, in, in Ontario, there are two publicly funded school systems, a Roman Catholic separate system, and, and a Protestant Christian general public system. And I thought, really? The general public system in the Toronto uh, School Board is a Protestant Christian system? Now, functionally, of course, it wasn't that. It was much more diverse. But that, the Education Act, as it read then, in any case, it's probably changed. Uh, as it read then, uh, it, was a, it was a holdover of what we call Christendom. The time when people talked about Canada as a Christian nation. And, and there was this, this mingling in some ways of, of church and wider society, of church and state. Now, it wasn't the reality on the ground, of course, and it, it, it never was in any full sense a Christian nation, although Christian values did shape 
the nation. But that was then, and this is now. And I'm sure you recognize that things have changed. Now, now frankly, we shouldn't be shocked because the biblical picture of the church is, is that the church is a distinct society. The church is it's called the holy nation um, in Scripture, among other things. We're, we're called to be a distinct people, different from the wider community around us. Can't make a difference if you aren't willing to be different. Church is called to be different. But if, if we really do live as a distinct society, if we really are different in some ways, that invites a pushback from the wider world around us. Because we, we bow the knee to a higher, to, the, to an ultimate authority, to the triune God focused in the Lordship of Christ over the church, his people. But if you and I live in distinct ways, different set of values from the wider community around us, that, that sometimes creates a pushback it creates an unfriendly attitude on the part of the wider community. And so that can mean a whole lot of things in practice. It, it may mean um, you lose friends because of that commitment. It may mean that your family refuses to affirm you and acknowledge you. I have, I have friends who are Jewish believers in Jesus whose parents have never recognized their grandchildren because the parents are not believers in Jesus, Messiah. It may mean uh, trouble at work. It may mean you don't get a promotion or a job that you want. It may mean, may mean uh, that, that they snicker about you and, and make fun of you at work or at school. It, it can mean all kinds of things at a personal level. It can also mean all kinds of things at a, at a large corporate level. The church, as, the, as, a, as a, the wider church, the whole church, believing church in, in our land, experiences unfriendliness on the part of the wider community. That shows up in a whole lot of ways. Uh, the most recent glaring example was the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in which they ruled against Trinity Western University in their suit against the law societies of British Columbia and Ontario. Some of you no doubt are familiar with the case. It, it, it's, it's, it's gone on for the last few years in reality. All Trinity Western University, an Evangelical Christian University, wanted to do was start a law school. And two law societies said, there's no way that we would admit to the bar graduates of a law school at your university because of your community covenant, which among other things requires that students refrain from sexual activity outside the boundaries of a heterosexual marriage. So the Supreme Court, in the majority opinion, well, there were really three forms of the majority opinion, which are a bit incoherent, which actually gives me some hope that there could be some change in the future. But 
the basic majority opinion said, well, yes, this does abridge freedom of religion, but the, the anti-discrimination rights of the LGBT community trump that. It's more important. And, and I could multiply examples. So, so we live in a time when, when many of us feel disoriented and disconnected and marginalized in a way we didn't in the past. And, and we feel the tension in a variety of ways, personally and corporately. So we need to think about how we navigate that, how we respond to that, how we respond to the unfriendly community around us. I think for a time like this, first epistle of Peter, near the end of the New Testament, speaks to us with a clarity and an obvious relevance that, that, that maybe we didn't feel before. So I, I'm inviting your attention today to first Peter, well, really, in some ways, to all five chapters, but that would take us too long. So I'm focusing on part pieces of chapter 3 and chapter 4 today, where Peter writes, he, he writes to, to Christians who are dispersed in the Roman world, who are experiencing various kinds of suffering and persecution and trouble because of their faith. Now, Sometimes when we read that in the New Testament, we think, oh, we think martyrs put to death for their faith. And so we feel, well, we're not there. So it's maybe doesn't feel as directly relevant for us. But it wasn't that at that point in history. In fact, the, the situation is like this. In chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery and lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and to heap abuse on you. So it's not martyrdom. It's criticism. It's mocking. It's being marginalized, ostracized. It's that sort of thing. It's, it's being mocked because of your values, the kind of thing that we experience today. So how do we respond to all that? Well, listen to what Peter wrote in chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what, for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then over chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now, there are a lot of things Peter says in the epistle that are crucial on the point that we're talking about. But I want to point to three that show up in this section. First, Peter says, don't assume the worst. Don't assume that everybody out there is after you. Don't assume that if you live as a faithful Christian, everyone around you is going to persecute you. That's the point at 3.13. Now, he, he makes this point by asking a question. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good. If you're eager to live in love for God and others and to do good things to others, who's going to harm you? Sometimes we make a point by asking a question, right? So if I say, um, who's going to keep you on the bench if you're the best player on the team? Or who's going to fail you in the course if you do all the work and do it properly? The question invites the answer, well, surely nobody under ordinary circumstances. And that's Peter's point here. If, if we really live in a way that loves others, who's going to harm you? Now, he goes on to say, but even if you should suffer for what is right, he recognizes that sometimes, I mean, sinners act irrationally. And sometimes people will persecute you even though you, you have no desire other than to do good to them. It can happen. He recognizes it can happen. But, but he effectively is saying to the believers, don't assume that it's going to happen. Don't assume it. Now, some of you I know are thinking back to other passages. You're thinking back to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when everybody persecutes you and slanders you on account of me. That's the way it was with the prophets. In other words, expect trouble. Yes, he said that. But a few verses later, he says, Let your light shine before the others around you so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In other words, Within the space of, of a few sentences, Jesus says, yes, sometimes people will, in their own sinful, strange way, persecute you for being my followers, but not everybody will. In fact, God will use your lifestyle of good deeds to draw some people to himself. In other words, Yes, there is an LGBTQ plus something lobby with an agenda that's very intense and they're active and public values have changed and it's more difficult than it used to be to live as a faithful Christian in our context. 
But that doesn't mean that the gay people who live next door are out to persecute you because you admit awkwardly, you know, we disagree on that. In fact, it's really surprising sometimes what happens when, when we actually relate to people in a natural way without assuming they're after us. My first pastor was in Bloomington, Indiana, back in the 1970s. For a whole lot of reasons, Bloomington had become a kind of center of what was then called the gay liberation movement. And in, in some odd ways, as I got involved in uh, speaking to the issue. As a result, I, I met the president of the Bloomington Gay Alliance. And we had some conversations. And one day, he said to me, um, would you be willing to lead a Bible study for people in the Alliance? And I said, um, aren't, isn't it clear that on principle, given my understanding of Scripture, what I believe is God's revealed will, I can't affirm a gay lifestyle? So I'm a little surprised you would ask. And he said, I understand. You know, he said, we differ on that. But he said, we have a lot of people in the alliance from evangelical backgrounds, and I think this would be good for them. And I thought, wow, I, I, can, I can hardly wait to talk to the elders at the church about this. Um, I'm 29 years old in my first pastoral ministry, and they already wonder about me because I actually am part of an evangelical ministerial association that includes Pentecostals. I can imagine this conversation and where it might go. Now, as it happened, it never became a formal invitation, and, and we never had that conversation at the elders' meeting. But it was a reminder, not everyone is on the attack. And sometimes, when we assume they're on the attack, we almost draw a target on our chest that says, persecute me, I'm a Christian. Peter says, don't do that. Don't assume the worst. It may happen, but don't assume the worst. The second point he makes is this. Make sure that if you do suffer, you really are suffering for doing what is right, not for doing what is wrong. Now, he, he makes this point back in chapter 2, actually, verses 19 and 20, when he's addressing Christian slaves, and says to them, make sure... Make sure that if your master punishes you, it's actually for, not for doing what's wrong. There's nothing virtuous about suffering for doing wrong. And then here, in, in chapter 3, 16, and 17, he, he makes the point that, that if, if they're going to slander you, make sure it's because of, of your good behavior in Christ. Verse 17 it's, it's better, if, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then over in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, he says, if, if you do suffer, make sure it's not because you're a murderer or a thief or, or some other kind of criminal or even a, a meddler, a busybody. Make sure it's not because you're a jerk. 
That's a free translation of the Greek original. But his point is, make sure, make sure that if they push back against you, it's because, it's because you're a faithful follower of Christ, not because, in fact, you're a jerk. And, and it's perfectly understandable why they might say something negative about you. So we need to remember, when, when we feel a kind of persecution, to ask, is it really because of my faith, or is it possibly because I'm, I'm just frankly hard to get along with, and I don't treat people well? Am, am I being smugly self-righteous? And they're understandably pushing back. Am I being nasty in the way that I talk about them and to them? Does that really happen among professedly God-fearing followers of Jesus? Well, yes, it does. Um, how many of you uh, have heard of Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas? Okay, that's two of us. It's really well known, unfortunately. It's not a very large church. It's mostly an extended family founded by Pastor Fred Phelps. What they're well known for is traveling around uh, the USA picketing at various places, like outside the funeral for Matthew Shepard, a young man, young gay man, who was apparently murdered and, and so they went, stood outside the church, I think it was, where the funeral was held, picketing with signs that said things like, God hates fags. In fact, if, if you want to check out Westboro Baptist Church, the website address is godhatesfags.com. I just rechecked it yesterday. It's for real. Now, they are ridiculed and mocked in, in the public media. They would say it's because they're serious Christians. They are serious Christians. And, and, and they're right to say that God does not approve of homosexual relationships. But they're really experiencing pushback because they're speaking in a harsh, unloving, nasty way in public. They would say it's because of their righteousness. A lot of us would say, well, that's a, that's a half-truth at best. I, I remember another one I experienced personally. This, this goes back to 1977, the last year that we lived in Indiana, and I was a pastor there. And I learned it, it doesn't always pay to have friends in high places. Linda, uh, a nursing school classmate of my wife, a longtime friend, called one day and said, I'm working for the State Board of Health now, and I'm, um, I'm uh, making visits to daycare centers to make sure that, to audit them, make sure they follow the rules, the, the Board of Health rules. She said, there's a Baptist church in a city not too far from you that has a daycare center, 
and they refused to submit to Board of Health inspections because they claim that violates free separation of church and state, violates their rights as a church. What do you think of that? I said, well, that's nuts. I mean, Board of Health regulations that protect the health of children, you know, I mean, it's perfectly sensible and realistic thing, and Bible calls the church to obey the governing authorities whenever possible. That's, I mean, that's crazy. So, that was a nice phone conversation with Linda. A while later, in the mail, I received a subpoena from the state attorney general calling me to appear at a hearing, a court hearing, before a judge to testify for the state against that Baptist church. Fun. So I drove over to the, uh, that, other's, that other town, found, I found the courthouse, and in a typical Indiana fashion, it was kind of a courthouse square. And I had trouble finding a parking place. And then I saw some church buses. And I thought, oh, it's called a hearing. I'm expecting something small. Maybe not. Actually, it was a courtroom about the size of this room, standing room only. As I started into the room, I saw a guy that I knew from our home church in another city in the state. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. This is a really important day for the whole Christian school movement in Indiana. And I thought, I don't think you're glad I'm here. <laughs> and so I ended up witnessing that day for the state against a Baptist church and a pastor. They believed they were being persecuted for doing what was good. They were actually being persecuted for violating the law for no good reason. Uh, so as, as we were leaving at the end of a long afternoon, the attorney general said to me, do I need to provide an escort to get you safely to your car? And I said, well, I, I think I'm okay to get to the car. And, and in two months, I'm, I'm fleeing the country, actually, <laughs> um, immigrating to Canada. But as I walked to my car, I saw some windows go down on church buses, and I, and I heard some of those wonderful Christian people say some things to me that I, I well, I didn't know they knew the words. <laughs> I got a letter at the end of the week saying, I don't know how you can put your head on the pillow and sleep at night for what you've done. I don't think they were being persecuted for righteousness' sake. They were being pers persecuted for violating a law. And there was no good reason to violate that law. So it does happen. So, so Peter says, as you relate to that wider world, don't assume the worst. I mean, it may not be as bad as you fear. And, and make sure, make sure that if you do suffer, it's really because of doing what's right. And then the third thing. If you do suffer, respond gently. Really? Yeah, really. Chapter 3, 14 to 16, when he describes how you respond, if indeed you do suffer for what is right, he says at the end of verse 15, you do it with gentleness and respect. Or, if we go back to chapter 3, verse 9, 
He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And the point he's making there is, follow the example of Christ. In fact, he uses that the language back in chapter 2. We've been called to follow in his steps. And so, if that wider community pushes back and is very unfriendly, Peter says the way to respond is not in kind. The way to respond is with gentleness and respect. And so you're sitting there wanting to ask Peter, why would I respond gently and respectfully to people who have made themselves your enemies, Lord? Why? And Peter would say, I'm glad you asked. There, there are several reasons. One is a fundamental truth going right back to Genesis 1 that all human beings are made in God's image and therefore of great value and to be treated as valuable. Another reason, Peter would say, is I've already written it in chapter 2. We're called to follow in the steps of Christ who did not pay back evil for evil. And I think Peter would also say, you should read what my brother Paul wrote when he wrote to Titus in chapter 3. Paul had left Titus in Crete, which was notoriously pagan. And so his instructions to him at chapter 3 are these. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. Why? Because at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. In other words, we're called to act in gentleness and respect toward people who have made themselves the enemies of God and his people because that's how God acted toward us. Paul says, we had no claim on, on anything from God. We, we were living disobediently by nature and by choice. And yet, how did God act toward us? Gave his one and only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He could have brought down the curtain on human history right after the fall, but he didn't. He acted patiently and mercifully and graciously toward us. And that's what he calls us to do. In fact, we, we actually sang about that. In, in our song, The Scandal of Grace, and our desire to be like God and to show grace toward others. And so we ought to act that way because it's the right thing to do. It's the godly thing to do. But, but it's also the strategic 
thing to do, which should come as no shock uh, to think that obeying the revealed will of God is the right strategy for God's people. Out, out of a bunch of examples of, of how this works, I keep coming back to this one. And it's a, it's a blog post written early in the year 2013 by, by a man named Shane Windmeyer entitled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick Philly. You may remember, in, in 2012, Chick-fil-A became, uh, became a, a topic of conversation around North America because the CEO, Dan Cathy, had spoken up in defense of traditional marriage and, and thus against same-sex marriage. Um, the Chick-fil-A Restaurant Foundation had provided some funding for a few conferences on the topic. And so Chick-fil-A became the object of scorn among so-called progressives in North America. The, the mayors of San Francisco and Chicago said they would never let Chick-fil-A open a restaurant there. I mean, it all continues to this day. Now, they, they've actually opened one in Manhattan, in New York City, and, and a blogger has written scornfully about it. Because they do really nasty things, like uh, provide good chicken sandwiches and waffle fries, and they give people Sunday off. How nasty can you be? So anyway, um, Shane Winmeyer was the founder and executive director of a group called Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and ally college students, his words. Shane was leading protests against Chick-fil-A all over the place. And, and then he said, in August 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour, and the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan Cathy knew how to text, and he would reach out to me as new questions came to his mind. This was not going to be a typical turn of events. And then Shane goes on to tell the whole story about how they, they had phone calls, they, they met in person, Dan Cathy treated him with respect, still rejecting the idea of same-sex marriage, and yet treated him with respect. And ultimately, Shane says, on New Year's Eve, I found myself sitting with Dan Cathy and his family at the Chick-fil-A Bowl, one of the major American college football bowl games sponsored by the Chick-fil-A company. And as he says, it was Dan Cathy who took the great risk of inviting me to be there and having his picture taken with me because Dan Cathy could have lost a lot of support of the evangelical Christian community. So Shane Winmeyer says in the end, we still disagree, but, but we, know, we learn, know how to disagree respectfully and engage one another honestly. 
And so I, I have no idea what kind of trouble Shane Winmeyer got in for writing that blog. Well, actually, I did see a few of the comments after the blog. And, and his fellow members of the LGBTQ community were not at all pleased with him. But he was won to a different attitude toward Christians by a Christian who treated him respectfully and gently. And as Peter and Paul remind us, that's how God treats us by grace and mercy, and we can be grateful not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are by nature and choice. So we, we have no idea where things are going to go. Who knows what, what kind of trouble pushback may come in the future. Or there might be a reversal of some of it. We simply don't know. We really don't. What we do know is that we as God's people are called to live in a godly way. That means following Christ, who as the Apostle John put it, was full of both grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us to be your people in this time and place. That has its challenges as well as its opportunities. And so we ask that you will work in us by your spirit so that we might, in fact, live in a Christ-like way. Enable us by your spirit to declare and to live what is true, to call others to do that, but to do it with grace and gentleness and a godly respect. Lord, that is, we, we recognize there's nothing easy about that. And yet you empower us by your spirit to do what you call us to do. And so bring that about, we pray, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.